This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, September 14th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, sick bear euthanized in Telluride. Town Council looks at goals and objectives. Eyes to ears with Bella Eatman. And a mountain weather forecast. Last Saturday, September 9th, residents and recreators along the river trail spotted a black bear close to town in the early afternoon. The bear appeared weak and was reported to the Telluride Marshals Department and to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. John Livingston, the public information officer for CPW in southwest Colorado, says officers showed up to the scene. Through making some observations of that bear, noticed it was very lethargic, um, looked sick, and it had a big humped up position in which it was walking uh, that indicated to our officers that it was uh, suffering from some abdominal pain. The 400-pound male bear didn't respond to efforts to shoo it from town. Throughout the afternoon, it became clear the bear was suffering, and CPW made plans to euthanize it, which were carried out later that day. An autopsy revealed the cause of its sickness, human trash. This bear's stomach uh, was completely blocked up by paper towels, disposable wipes, you know, even some plastic bag matter, um, as well as, you know, some food items like french fries and green beans and all sorts of things that bears should never be eating. The waste had created a blockage in the bear's intestines, making it unable to digest food and causing it to starve even as it tried to eat. An extremely painful condition, the bear developed a fever simultaneously. Livingston says this bear was known to frequent town. You know, Telluride Marshals officers have responded to several calls over the years of this bear uh, getting into trash um, and hanging out around residential areas. In late August, a bear broke into a home on Main Street, and CPW set traps with plans to relocate the bear and, if necessary, euthanize it. The traps were tampered with, and wildlife officers were harassed by Telluride residents who didn't want the bear killed. Those traps in late August were unsuccessful. Now, says Livingston, We do believe that this is the same bear. Um, you know, not able to 100% confirm that. But again, you know, with this being kind of that well-known bear that was always kind of hanging around in, in this area, um, you know, uh, our officers have good reason to believe that it's likely that same bear. The euthanasia on Saturday thus brings a somber end to a long bear saga in Telluride. Livingston says CPW is dedicated to keeping the state's wildlife wild, and doing so requires collaboration and trust with the public. CPW will only euthanize a bear in drastic circumstances. Livingston continues. Folks have a kind of a hesitancy to call CPW when there's a bear issue. But the reality is, is the sooner we learn about a conflict or an incident or even just a sighting, the better prepared we can be to try to remove whatever is drawing that bear into our residential spaces so that the bear will naturally move on on its own. If we can show up to a neighborhood, look to see, hey, this is the bird feeder that keeps bringing this bird back or this bear back, we can educate the public on what they can do to remove those attractants and help our bears stay wild. Following the past weekend's incident, much discussion on social media blamed tourists and visitors for leaving open trash around and causing the bear's illness. But Livingston says it's important to step up and take responsibility for the state's wildlife. You know, it, it's easy to kind of point the, the finger blame somewhere else, but as Coloradans, we can all do better, too. It takes all of us in our communities to not only educate our neighbors, uh, make sure, uh, you know, our visitors are, are educated on what it means to live in bear country or recreate in bear country, 
but it takes all of us too to hold each other to a high standard of hey you know you notice your neighbor's uh, trash getting into regularly have that conversation with them let them know hey you know, this isn't going to go well for that bear. We really care about the wildlife resource in our community. The Colorado Parks website has detailed information regarding bear proofing on its website at cpw.state.co.us. There are the basics for what local government does. Maintain roads, provide sanitation, law enforcement. But how does the government know what to prioritize? What are the goals and visions for the coming year? That was the topic of conversation at Telluride's town council meeting last week. Council held a special budget work session to discuss the goals and objectives for the 2024 budget. The purpose of this going forward is to really help show the community, um, obviously, the priorities of town council, which also reflect our budget. That's Telluride assistant town manager Zoe Denal presenting before council. Danelle notes, the budget starts with the values of town council. And that's where we start of what really the values of town council are. Those kind of move into our focus areas, such as preserve community, then the goals within those focus areas, such as pursue affordable housing opportunities, and then the action items that town council would like to see in 2024. As we discuss, some of these things are multi-year, some of them are ongoing, some of them um, we haven't even started this year for a multitude of reasons, maybe priorities changed or whatnot. As a framework, town council breaks its goals and objectives into those different buckets. Each bucket, Denal uses the example of pursue affordable housing, has a number of actions contributing to that goal. The action items will each be contributed with a certain budget amount. So when uh, someone comes and says, all right, what do these buckets look like from a budgetary standpoint? It'll be very easy to see, okay, they have a huge priority on affordable housing because we're spending this amount of money through these action items. And that's what it looks like. This year, the budget process started with department heads laying out their budget goals and actions for the next year. Mayor Pro Tem Mian Fee notes the process gives more clarity on the tasks ahead. Definitely a new way of going about setting our goals and objectives, but it gives our staff ownership of what those goals are and gives the community further transparency to how we're going to define the successes that we're all going to achieve together. Um, I kind of look at it as like, a, this is sort of like a road trip, right? Our job as council is to set what the final destination that we want to get to is. Um, the managers are going to choose the route and the staff's going to plan the stops along the way. Um, so this now will be a very collaborative process for us to be able to ensure that everybody is participating in the conversation um, as we kind of get all go through. The overarching buckets for Telluride's goals and objectives are preserve community, protect health and quality of life, address critical infrastructure needs, and cultivate economic sustainability and a thriving commercial core. Subcategories for the buckets include pursuing affordable housing opportunities, promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, promoting mental health and well-being, addressing water and wastewater infrastructure and funding needs, and evaluating efforts of marketing and tourism activities. Over the course of a two-hour conversation, council members go through each different action item, goals, and buckets, judging where they see fit. In the end, fully reformatting the document, moving a focus on community housing from the bucket of preserving community to addressing critical infrastructure needs. Here's council member Geneva Shawnette. I want the community to think more that affordable housing is a critical infrastructure need as opposed to like a more soft, swishy, preserved community goal. But I also feel like it, I feel like it belongs in both. I just want it to like 
feel like we need water, we need parking, we need roads, and mm -hmm. we need affordable housing. They're all infrastructure for the town. The majority of council, including council member Adrian Christie, agrees. I could get behind address critical infra infrastructure needs as number one and then pursue affordable housing and whatever, however we change that is number one in the infrastructure. And then the rest of these are, because that's truly what we're working on. We're working on housing, we're working on the gondola, we're working on the wastewater treatment plant. There's lots of other things that are happening also, but like, I love yeah. that idea. I, I'm kind of with you on that one. Staff plans to clean up the draft of goals and objectives. Council will continue its discussion on the 2024 budget over the next few weeks. Council's next budget meeting will take place on Thursday, September 21st. This week on Eyes to Ears, Telluride High School's Bella Eatman turns away from the painted canvas and takes a more photographic view. Have a listen. Good evening and welcome once more to the Kodo program Eyes to Ears. I am your host, Bella Eatman, and I normally visit local art galleries to describe paintings to you. However, today I will describe a photograph I observed at our local bakery, Baked in Telluride, a photo known as Evening Aster Bloom in Ingram Basin by Gary Ratcliffe. The sun lowers itself behind a thin blanket of orange and mauve clouds. Our star is blurred into a glowing orb of yellow, orange, and pink above indigo and blue faraway mountains. The sight is then framed by the near-midnight blue of two large mountainsides at either edge of the canvas just before the valley. Stretching before us is the mostly flat plain of tall green grasses and dotted wildflowers of white, yellow, and purple. But right in front of us, like a path we've been following all day, is a thick trail of yellow-centered, sky-blue petaled aster flowers. The flowers seem to lead us between the two mountains and up into the sunset. In the beginning, I never really thought I'd describe a photography, but one Monday afternoon of getting pizza at BIT made me give it a try. This collection was truly gorgeous, though. I recommend taking a peek as you take a bite out of whatever baked good you choose to purchase. But this is Kodo's Eyes to Ears. My name is Bella Eatman, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Get your grit on and your race legs ready. The John Wayne Cancer Foundation is hosting a True Grit half marathon and 5K trail race in Ridgeway next week. The race will meander through locations seen in the original 1969 film. Organizers say the run is a challenging course on single track and fire roads, crossing private ranches only accessible to racers. 
The scenery includes views of the San Juan Mountains, the True Grit Barn, wildflower valleys, and herds of majestic elk. The True Grit Half Marathon and 5K Trail Race will take place in Ridgeway on Saturday, September 23rd. Registration is available at johnwayne.org. Bidding farewell to summer can be a bumpy ride, but the Colorado Department of Transportation is asking drivers to stay safe this fall and is putting a special emphasis on preventing driving under the influence. The agency is upping its DUI enforcement throughout the fall. Last year, during its fall DUI enforcement push, the agency made 1,400 arrests over a 40-day period. Regardless of arrest numbers and in any season, CDOT says driving while impaired is an incredible danger both to oneself and to other road users. The agency instructs drivers to plan ahead and secure a safe ride home if they're drinking and to understand that even one drink can be enough to impair a driver's abilities. Grocery store giant Kroger is paying out $70 million to Colorado as part of a national settlement over the company's role in the opioid crisis. Attorney General Phil Weiser announced last week he had reached a preliminary agreement with the company. Kroger will pay a total of $1.3 billion to states and local governments. Weiser says the money coming to Colorado will be distributed to local authorities for treatment, recovery, and prevention programs, as well as education around substance use. Kroger owns King Supers and City Market grocery stores in Colorado. Its involvement in the opioid crisis stems from its in-store pharmacies. Federal courts ruled the stores failed to flag high levels of opioid prescriptions flowing through those facilities. Economic concerns are top of mind for Colorado's Latino voters. As KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports, a new poll takes stock of the most pressing issues facing the state's Latino communities. The Colorado Latino Policy Agenda is released annually by advocacy groups Voces Unidas and Color. This year, it surveyed 1,600 voters across the state. The top concerns among those voters were inflation, the high cost of living, and low wages. Gabe Sanchez led the research team that put the poll together. He says many of the economic concerns stem from housing costs. So consequently, when we ask folks, you know, do you support a range of public policy issues intended to address protection for renters or affordable housing, you see overwhelming support. More than a third of the poll's respondents said they can't afford or can barely afford where they live. Respondents also want state lawmakers to prioritize homelessness, health care, and gun violence. On the federal level, they want action to protect immigrant rights. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. School districts across the country are grappling with transportation issues due to a shortage of bus drivers. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KZMU's Molly Marcello reports on how driver shortages have turned bus scheduling into a juggling act in one rural school district in eastern Utah. Grand County's school district went into the year short. They were short on kitchen staff, short on substitute teachers, short on maintenance workers. They were able to boost staff numbers in a lot of departments before the school year officially began. But there's one that's still searching for the right mix of people who are part mentor, part transportation professional. Bus drivers. 
So this is our training room and our break room and slash giveaway fruit and vegetables. Anna Conrad is the director of transportation at Grand County Schools. We're speaking in the break room at the bus barn, a space right now full of garden-grown food. It's homey, comfortable, mostly, I think, because of the school bus-themed decor. We are all yellow school bus. We love school buses. It was here at the bus barn just about a month ago that Conrad had a meeting with her staff. She gave them a heads up that this year might be a little challenging. It's two days before school starts. My drivers come in and I update them on all the new procedures and things that are going on for the year. And um, at that time, I just said, you know, we're we're really short this year um, on drivers. About five drivers short. And that can be a real hit to a small district like Grant. Conrad says to most efficiently run routes from Spanish Valley to Castle Valley and cover activities like sports games and field trips, the district needs three more full-time and two more part-time drivers. And they don't have that yet. So to accommodate, they've combined two routes into one. Anyone and everyone who can fill in is, including the transportation district's mechanic and Conrad herself. It's a juggling act every day, and um, it can be entertaining. (laughs) to say the least. Grand County's schools are not alone in this transportation juggling act. Major counties and cities across the country are also facing driver shortages. It's even caused temporary school closures. This nationwide issue has been bubbling for some time. It was starting back before the coronavirus happened. So um, bus shortages throughout the nation actually started before COVID. And then after COVID, of course, it just went downhill. Private transportation company Hop, Skip, Drive surveyed hundreds of districts across the country for their annual school transportation report. In their latest survey, districts say they've lost bus drivers to retirement, low pay, and competition with private companies like Amazon, who need professional drivers. Conrad says driver retirement hit in a big way for Grand County Schools. And so that's that's been really tough. Not replacing them is the hard thing. That's because it takes, as Conrad says, a certain person to be a school bus driver. This person wants to drive a 40-foot bus. They want to get their commercial driver's license and continue their education. They want a split shift schedule, and they want to work with students. We classify our buses as mobile classrooms, so um, teaching doesn't end at school, and so most of our drivers know that. Part of each driver's route, according to Conrad, is to learn every student. School bus drivers are the first staff students see in the morning and the last before they go home. And so drivers have a unique opportunity to bond with those students in a different way than a teacher would. We see their homes, we see where they're going, and we can see if they're having a bad day. And um, we just talk to them. Conrad hopes that this unique type of mentorship will attract new professionals to the field. But a few other incentives will likely help, too. The district has increased driver pay. New school bus drivers in Grand County now start at just over $22 an hour. And if they work full time, they can get benefits like medical and retirement. This year, Conrad is even offering an in-house CDL class beginning this October. And she's hoping she'll get some more dedicated staffers out of it. It's quite a process to uh, become a school bus driver, but there's nothing better in the world. 
hanging in the halls of Grand County's bus barn are professional photos of the drivers pictured with their buses. They kind of remind me of the starting lineup of a championship sports team. Conrad says they should because her team are all stars. Can't speak highly enough about my crew. We've got a great, a great team. I couldn't ask for any better drivers. She tells me how one driver decorates their bus with images of butterflies, another in motivational quotes, another hosts word of the month where kids can earn extra credit for using the word in a paragraph or a picture. She has a fitting theme for her department this year. My theme this year is we are small, but we are mighty. (laughs) Reporting with KZMU for the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, I'm Molly Marcello. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for rain tonight, tapering off to leave mostly cloudy skies. The forecast low is near 40 degrees. Friday brings a 90% chance of rain and thunderstorms throughout the day, with a high in the low 50s. Precipitation will clear gradually overnight on Friday, leaving clear skies in a low in the high 30s. Saturday should be mostly sunny, with a high near 60 degrees and a slight chance of afternoon showers. Saturday night, expect clear skies and a low near 40. This has been the news for Thursday, September 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. Kodo News will be off on Friday for our annual broadcast of the Telluride Blues and Brews Festival. Tune into Kodo's broadcast live from Town Park starting on Friday morning and running through Sunday night. Listen over the airwaves or online at koto.org. We will be back with more news on Monday, September 18th. And now, a personal commentary. Hey, this is Teresa at the Telluride Historical Museum with your Miner's Minute. On May 17th, 1896, 29-year-old May Canfield died of a drug overdose in Telluride's red light district. Also known as Trixie Green, May worked the line as a prostitute, and in this profession, drug use and suicide was the norm. Perhaps she was lured to the booming town of Telluride with dreams of finding fortune and was instead left to struggle in the sex trade. When no one came forth to claim her body, she was buried in one of the many unmarked graves of our Lone Tree Cemetery. Legend has it that May had hoped to marry her client, William Hosking, who worked at Lewis Mine. Yet, when he abandoned her for the mine, she turned to morphine. After her death, William's friends reported that he was haunted by her in his sleep and that her apparition followed him deep into the mine. To see and learn more about May Trixie Green and other everyday heroes of Telluride's past, join us this Friday for my personal favorite program of all time, a tour of Lone Tree Cemetery. Join me on Friday, September 15th at 1 p.m. for these tours or on September 22nd or October 4th before they turn into our lamplight tours on October 13th. Tickets are only $15 or $10 for museum members, and please call the museum to sign up in advance. Tours will depart promptly from the cemetery shed at 1 p.m. Our regular historical walking tours are continuing through September uh, and October on Thursdays and Tuesdays as well, meeting at the museum at 1 p.m. The museum closes for off-season on October 15th, so it's your last chance this month to check out our newest annual exhibit on the history of festivals. 
Finally, our annual Fireside Chat series kicks off on Wednesday, September 20th, with an amazing presentation by museum board member, Telluride native and local author, Fred Blackburn, as he presents an explosive and little-known history of Blue Lake. These three chats are generously hosted at the Madeline Hotel and Residences and begin promptly at 6 p.m. in their great room, and best of all, they're free and open to all. See you at a museum event soon. Thanks, Kodo. You're a rare medium. Well done. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.